now a man from another science fiction universe, which is uh, uh, equally as miraculous. Uh, they've never even been together in public, and I'm delighted to present to you the father of Star Trek. Jason. And this is Gabe. And this week, we are happy to bring you a conversation that we had with John and Maria Jose Tenuto. We last had them on the show all the way back in September 2019, episode 188, the Star Wars radio dramas episode, which was one of our favorite episodes we ever did. And I don't know, this episode may be another one of our favorite episodes we ever did, because we're talking to them about the deep, long history connections between Star Wars and Star Trek. It's like the age-old question, do you prefer breakfast or lunch? And the answer is always, I like brunch. Because <laughs> why pick when you can have both at the same time? Peanut butter or chocolate. They taste great together. They taste great on their own, Star Wars and Star Trek. And this is a wonderful conversation. John and Maria Jose are absolutely they're absolute legends in their knowledge and the amount of research they do. And as a fan of both, uh, this is something we've wanted to do for a very long time, like I said. And I think everyone's in for a real treat here. Yeah. All right. Let's get to it. All right. Here we go. 
I'm so excited to have you both back. I can't believe... Can you guys believe it was September 2019 when we did the the radio dramas and the Brian Daly episode? Wow, I can't believe that's been that long. It's a long time. A lot lot of stuff happened in between them. (laughs) Just just a few things. Just a couple. (laughs) Yeah, a couple things happened. Well, and I am equally so excited to have you both back on because we are talking about a subject like when you guys brought this idea to us it was i said to you it's so great because this is a subject we've wanted to do for years the deep 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 connections between star wars and star trek which i feel like there's way more and way more interesting facts than a lot of people know about you know, yeah, it's interesting because we, we, you know, obviously we, we've both lived it. Uh, I'm, I'm sure many fans have being fans of both franchises. Uh, if you like Star Wars and Star Trek, which is the only proper way to live. Um, <laughs> maybe throw some Indiana Jones in there and some other things. But um, if you, uh, you know, you get into any of the particularly behind the scenes material, you start seeing so many of the same names pop up that worked on it behind the scenes. Occasionally even you'll notice actors uh, back and forth uh, between the franchises. And then uh, really when we, 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 you know, of course you notice that of just a, by course of being a fan, but when we started to do um, both our newspaper research, where we, we took a look at about um, 2000 or so articles about the history of star Wars uh, from 1977 to 1983, kind of like what, you know, analog Star Wars, you know, what, what was, what was, what were newspapers saying about Star Wars when Star Wars first hit? And we did the same thing with uh, Star Trek. And we also began to see a lot of those connections uh, there, which was kind of interesting for us uh, in how uh, Star Trek and Star Wars were covered, you know, by newspapers, by the media. Uh, And then of course, we're writing our two books, one about Star Trek uh, to the Wrath of Khan and one about, uh, uh, Brian Daly and the Star Wars radio dramas, we, of course, there was the overlap there as well. I just wanted to add that I'm always shocked and a little bit saddened when I'm ever asked Star Wars or Star Trek, or when people are surprised that I like both. To me, I don't know why it has to be either one. I mean, both are awesome. I think it's great to love both. Um, same thing when it comes to, you know, other things like even superheroes, you know, you don't have to be an either or person. It's it's that always unfortunate like sport team mentality of fandoms. It's like I can only like my team, and I'm not allowed to like any other teams. And it's we, we that that does not work for our, our fandoms. And yeah, I feel the same way. Where I, you know, often I'll tell people like, yeah, I, like the 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 Las Vegas Trek convention was what last weekend, and I was telling people I was like, oh, I went to the the Vegas Trek convention many years ago and people were like, Oh, you went to a Star Trek convention. And I was like, I've been to a bunch of them, you know, <laughs> that's a great way to put it with, um, the sports analogy. It's like in groups and out groups. And if Star Wars is your in group, then Star Trek has to be your out group or vice versa. And, and it doesn't have to be that way. Oh, I was going to say, we were having a little philosophical discussion. Our son this morning, um, was saying how he thought that the diff, one of the differences was that Star Trek was a little more favorable towards government. Uh, and even government control and Star Trek and Star Wars was not. Um, and that's because in Star Trek, the government is the Federation is 
pretty benign. I mean, it's got a good spirit and a good heart and everything. And obviously the the government in Star Wars, particularly the official government, uh, is not very benign. But then th- even that, we, we started to have complications with that, right? We were talking about how well, but in Star Trek, a lot of the stories are rogue admirals or bad Starfleet decisions or bu- bureaucracy of Starfleet, um, and of course, there is a good good government in Star Wars. It's the Republic, right? So, and and you know, with corruption, of course, as any big government gets, and then and then the New Republic. That that difference, that concept that these things are fundamentally different from each other, is one of the the things that drove us to see well, how are they fundamentally the same? Yeah, each of them asking us to question authority at times, and it's all in there. So where where do we start with all of this? What what's what's the beginning of the mysterious connections between these two wonderful things? Well, we I guess we could start with the creators um, themselves being fans of each other's work. Yeah, uh, a, a couple of interesting things that we uncovered. Um, well, you know, uh, first of course, a, a great connective tissue uh, between Star Trek and Star Wars is Dan Madsen. Dan, of course, uh, I'm sure as all fans of both know, um, you know, was the internet before there was the internet um, for us fans. He was our connect connection to both franchises because Dan was the uh, publisher and president of both the official Star Trek um, fan club and its magazine, The Communicator, uh, and the official Lucasfilm fan club, which the eventually became the Star Wars Insider after it was the Lucasfilm. Uh, fan club magazine for a while. Um, and so Dan, it, it's many, in many ways, it's appropriate that Dan uh, took a very special photograph. So the, the very first Star Trek, and now what's the very first Star Trek convention? That's, that's a whole nother talk because what's, what's a convention and who gets to define what the convention is. But normally uh, if you're talking about sort of the official line the very first Star Trek convention was back in January, uh, I think the 21st to the 23rd in 1972 at the Statler Hilton Hotel in New York. Now that had Gene Roddenberry, who was the creator of Star Trek, his, his wife and, and the voice of the Enterprise and Luxana Troy and Nurse Chapel uh, actress uh, Majel Barrett. It had writer D.C. Fontana. It had Isaac Asimov um, at this very first sort of Star Trek convention with guests. But there were conventions before that. Um, back in March 1969, at the Newark Library, uh, at the they had a Star Trek convention. It was advertised as a Star Trek convention. There were no guests. It was just it was fans getting together. So I guess the question is, do you need, you know, official actors or behind the scenes artists to make it a convention? And even before that, there were something they used to call Nimoy Inns, kind of like sit-ins. But they were about Leonard Nimoy, Nimoyans. And that was like in the 1968. The, the people were, you know, there was a lot of drugs back then. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, which is the first Star Wars convention now, you know, official. So, um, of course, Dan creates the very first uh, Star Wars celebration, um, which goes April 30th to May 1st, 1999. You know, very famous event. Uh, starts the whole, you know, an, annual or biannual, usually uh, Star Wars um, celebrations, and that was over at the wings at over the Rockies uh, Air and Space Museum in Colorado. And but there was a convention before that. Uh, whether you want to consider it a Starlog 
event or a Star Wars event is kind of, again, that that's sort of up to you. But Dan played a, a role in that, too. So the very first Star Wars convention that isn't a celebration happened on May 23rd to May 25th, 1987. It was a 10-year celebration of Star Wars. It was hosted by Starlog Magazine, Creation Entertainment, which runs the Star Trek conventions. Um, they they kind of ran that event. Um, and that was at the Stouffer Concourse Hotel in, in Los Angeles. And what's important about that event is not only was that George Lucas was there, in, a, in addition to many other of the actors and so on from, the, from Star Wars, but they surprised Lucas by having Gene Roddenberry, who's the creator of Star Trek, come out on stage. And Dan was there covering the event for the fan club. Uh, Gene sta- stays on stage a little bit sort of behind him, but the two of them sort of shaking hands with each other is a one-time event in history that occurred for a second, and Dan took that photograph. So if you look online, you should be able to find that picture of uh, the creator of Star Wars and the creator of Star Trek meeting for their first and only time that they met one another. And for and we were talking earlier about the idea that the this, this division between Star Wars and Star Trek fandom, but Lucas is a fan of is a fan of Star Trek. Uh, he did a really wonderful interview with um, Gene Roddenberry's son. Eugene Roddenberry for a great documentary. If you're a Star Trek fan, it's called Trek Nation. It was produced by Roddenberry Productions. And it's it's about a son trying to figure out who his dad is um, after he passed away. And the dad is Gene Roddenberry uh, and the son is Eugene Roddenberry. And he um, he interviewed Lucas for that. And in the interview, Lucas talks about, you know, being a fan of Star Trek, going to Star Trek conventions before he was unable to, right, because people would recognize him. But he used to go to Star Trek conventions. Now, all of this makes sense, right? Lucas is going to college in the 1960s, and he's he still has a lot of connections to college after that, after he graduates. Star Trek was a big thing in colleges. People used to get together and watch Star Trek in college. That was a huge thing after it, in fact, both when the show was on and after the show was canceled. It's one of the things that brought it back uh, to the mainstream. He talks about being a Star Trek fan and admiring Roddenberry's ability to produce something like Star Trek with such limited resources, which is exactly the situation that Lucas himself faces um, when he creates Star Wars. I mean, I don't think it's a mistake. This has never been confirmed or anything, but I don't think it's a mistake that there is Star Wars and Star Trek. Because at the time of Star Wars coming out, Star Trek was mainstream, more popular than when it was on TV. There was already talk way before Star Wars of Star Trek being a movie, um, uh, coming back as a movie. And, 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 and there were scripts that were written and there was pre-production and everything before there was Star Wars. A lot of people think that the connection is that Star Trek, you know, Star Trek is on TV, it fails um, you know, then Star Wars comes out and then they come out with the Star Trek movies. That's not really what occurred. Star Trek softened up the uh, entertainment arena so that Star Wars could come along and stand on its shoulders. And there was an effective group of people in the beginning who accepted it. That it wasn't that far out. For the studios, it was way far out. You know, what is this? But there was a fan base out there. The fan base was primarily the Star Trek fan base who understood science fiction, understood visual science fiction. And also to add to the mainstream of Star Trek, you had the space shuttle 
being named the Enterprise. That's yes, yeah. That and was, that was a fan campaign. That was, um, and that's a good example too of fans getting involved. So you have fans getting involved in the letter writing campaign to save Star Trek. You have a fan campaign to name, actually rename the Orbiter um, because it was going to be called the Constitution. Um, but fans got involved and sent letters and uh, got it named Enterprise. So that was another example example of mainstreaming. And before about a year before Star Wars, that was seventy six. Yeah, right? seventy six. So about a year mm-hmm. before Star Wars. That's why I was going to be named the Constitution. Right. The, yeah, because we were all bicentennial crazy. A lot, lot of drugs back then. And um, <laughs> the other, my other favorite story about the two creators uh, uh, with each other, besides the admiration that that Lucas had for. Um, for Roddenberry was um, we were Mary, Mary Jo and I were giving a talk at a Star Trek convention once, and we were kind of behind the, the stage. And one of the people there was Richard Arnold. And uh, for fans of Star Trek, you probably see Richard Arnold's name in the credits of next generation. And Richard was the uh, assistant, personal assistant to Gene Roddenberry. He also kind of took care of uh, licensing. I, 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 w- I would hesitate to draw an exact parallel, but he was kind of like, Steve Sansweet is to is to us, and we have a, a, a wonderful Steve Sansweet connection to Star Trek in, in just a moment. A very important uh, Steve Sansweet connection, but um, uh, kind of like that, kind of you know, not exactly, but kind of like that. So and we, we were talking to, to Richard and, and just chit chatting, and he told us a great story. So R- Richard Arnold was at a hotel one day, just you know, there for whatever reason, and and George Lucas was there. So he went up and he introduced himself to George Lucas and said, you know, hi, I'm Richard Arnold. I'm I'm the personal assistant of Gene Roddenberry. And uh, Lucas said, oh, Gene Roddenberry, I, if I had half his genius. Wow. So then on Monday morning, Richard Arnold goes back to work and he goes into Gene's office and Gene is typing away at the typewriter. And, and he says, Gene, you're never going to guess who I met this weekend. And, and Roddenberry says, who? And he says, well, I met. I met George Lucas and I told him, I said, I work for you. And he said, oh, if I only had half of Gene Roddenberry's genius and Gene Roddenberry, I guess, looked up and without missing a beat said, and if only I had half of Lucas's money. <laughs> and I, I love that. I love that story. And just real fast, since I mentioned it, so I don't forget about it, the Steve Sansweet connection, because of course, Steve is everyone's friend. And uh, so uh, before Steve worked for Lucasfilm, he was a um, editor at the um, for the Wall Street Journal, and uh, and it's really in the, in within that role that he you know kind of discovers that Star Wars pamphlet you know in the garbage you know that kind of thing. But um, one of the articles that he wrote prior to uh, his involvement with with Star Wars, uh, this is actually uh, in the early 1980s, uh, specifically actually 1981. Uh, he writes an article about uh, Star Trek and how there is this big sort of fan protest about the um, ending of Star Trek, that uh, ending of Star Trek II, that the supposed ending of Star Trek II, and hopefully I'm not ruining the film for anybody, but it's been 40 years, uh, Spock dies at the end of the film. And the question was, will Spock die or won't? That rumor had been floating around that Spock was going to die in Star Trek II. And fans had taken out a advertisement in uh, trade magazines, basically outlining, we're going to protest this movie. This is how much money you're going to lose, Paramount. Do not kill Spock. 
and this was an interesting financial story. And and in that story, basically, this is a good you know eight nine months before the film is out. The whole the whole story is revealed in 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 in, in Steve's everything in there is right about what the supposition is and and so on. Now this of course uh, produces a, a couple of interesting results. One is. Um, Paramounts and and people who work on the film start getting death threats from from fans, like because this that mainstreams the notion that Spock is going to maybe die in this film. It also causes Paramount to question whether or not this is the right decision or not. Eventually, they'll soften the ending a little bit with um, you know the remember and 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 the, the hope, the possibility of hope uh, coming out of that, and then. Uh, but at the time that the article came out, Nimoy was actually in China filming there uh, something else. And I think Marco Polo, I think he was filming. This appears in the, in the, in the, uh, the Wall Street uh, Journal that's published there. And he reads this article. And instead of being angry, Nimoy thinks this is fantastic, that there's this much passion about uh, Star Trek and about the character, and he finds it, you know, uh, the, the emotionally gratifying. Uh, he didn't get angry about the article. He actually sent a note to Steve Stansweet, uh, a personal note thanking him for the article. So it's a great, you know, Steve played a little bit of role there in the history of um, uh, of Star Trek too, as well. I had no idea. That is amazing. <laughs> You can if you if you have like access to say um, you could probably just find it on Google. But if you, if you have access to like the Wall Street Journal archives or something like that, you could just pull up the article um, and just you know just look for Steve Sands. Just search for Steve Sandsweet in Star Trek Two, or uh, you'll you'll be able to find that. Well, all of this it, it's got me thinking too because you were talking about with, with people watching it in college and like my own for just for me. I don't know for Gabe. But I mean, my my dad used to watch Star Trek in college. He told me that they had to fight. You had to sign up. He would tell me to reserve a seat in this room at his dormitory. And you had to sign up early to reserve a spot to be able to watch Star Trek in this one, the room that had a TV in the late 60s. And then... So I mean, st- the original Star Wars was the first movie I ever saw in theaters, and then what was it? Just a few years later, I saw the motion picture in the movie theater, and it blew my mind. And then that was the thing too when I discovered that there was a TV show with the same characters that were in the motion picture. So the motion picture was really my gateway, and then I started watching the reruns of the original series. And then I got the Mego action figures. I still have them. My Kirk and Spock and Scotty and I had a Decker and Ilea. And my Star Trek figures would play with my Star Wars figures when I was little. It was just one big happy space family. So that's like what we were saying at the beginning. Like for me, there's never really been a division. It's just all fun space stuff. That's the one thing when it comes to toys, John keeps them separated. You want to tell you Han Solo? Oh, well, you know, that, a, I love I'm that weird, story. I'm a, I'm a weird person, but I, you know, I, I look, I, I believe you play appropriate to the films. That's my, so when Han, when Han Solo was frozen in carbonite, I could not play with my Han Solo figure for three years because I didn't know what happened to him. So I had to create a character uh, that I could play with the Han Solo figure. Cause otherwise I couldn't play with him. 
Uh, and it was his brother. I created a brother for Han Solo named Olin Solo. So that's actually canon. It wasn't Dash Randar. <laughs> I never thought of that before. Hey, wait a second. Um, so uh, I, I used to get agitated. My brothers used to tease me by having my Planet of the Apes figures play with my Star Trek figures. And I would be like, put it down. Stop that. <laughs> Those franchises don't mix with one another. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that you said that. I mean, Mary Jo could talk a lot about fans in a second. But I, I was thinking how, for me anyway, I, I, I came to the material first and then the fandom second. In other words, I, I didn't know because I grew up in the 60s and 70s. So there was no – I mean, there was a fan network, right? But you had to know – how to plug into that, how to get into the fanzines and stuff like that. And, and so I was just watching Star Trek and loving it and then seeing Star Wars and loving it. And of course, every kid was a star, every kid was a Star Wars fan. I didn't know a kid who wasn't a Star Wars fan. So I growing up. So it the, when when I went to go to my very first Star Trek convention uh, much later on, or even when I went to go see Star Trek Two: the Wrath of Khan, which which I got to see by a, sort of accident with my dad on opening night at the Esquire theater in Chicago. Uh, I, I never had been exposed to sort of fans gathering together before. And that, and that, and when you go on opening night, everybody knows, right? Opening night's the best night to go see a movie for, especially for a franchise. Cause everybody's excited. Everybody's a fan. Everybody's, you know, and, uh, and the energy in the theater. Yeah. The energy is great. So, so that was the sort of my introduction to that. I had never conceived that there could be a problem between, liking both of them although i knew well enough never to mix the toys <laughs> so we mentioned fandom uh, and th- I, this is one area where i know gabe and i we are always interested in the the, the early days of fandom so yeah um we could talk about the um the headlines of how the media covered fans and then um some great stories about fans um with Star Trek, the media covered it as if it were some kind of religion or some kind of a cult. Um, and even with the name Trekkies, kind of like um, similar to how Moonies, the E at the end, Moonies, Trekkies, um, but they portray them as uh, a cult, religion. There's even a headline, uh, Star Trek Freaks Convene Again, um, <laughs> in reference to a convention. And then with Star Wars, it was kind of like an illness. Uh, Star Wars fans going wild. Um, lots of headlines using the word mania, craze. Um, fans are spacey. The reaction is madness. Star Wars fever. And then um, there was a Star Wars fever spreads spreads to Britain like it was a disease that people were catching. Um, so um, interesting how the media covered it. And then I know you mentioned about... Um, merchandise and star trek especially star trek the motion picture was heavily merchandised we had the first happy meal uh first well first um film tie-in happy meal with star wars uh, star trek the motion picture um but kind of funny the opposite with star wars you didn't have a lot of merchandise for that first film because it was so new and really it was like three companies took a chance and put out stuff with either ahead of the film or with the film. So like Marvel comics released in April of 77, um, the novelization, November of 76. And what am I forgetting? Um, so there was the Kenner signed it. Yes. It would take, yeah. it would take a year or so to get the, get the toys. Yeah. Right. 
And then, of course, obviously, once Star Wars was a hit, it was, you know, a license to print money, getting the license to um, produce merchandise. Um, but both really heavily marketed. And then I think, too, that when, when you think of the premieres of the movies, you know, the the Star Wars kind of came out of nowhere. So I, it, what's interesting with the, with the films, just looking at the films and the fandom of the, at that era, you know, when Star Trek comes out, it's 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 popular in the sense that it's got a, it's got an educated audience. It's got, um, it, it costs, it co- they used to do like price breakouts. Star Trek came out before there were Nielsen's. And so they, they measured things a little differently back then. And the, the idea was sort of like, how much money did it t- take you to reach a thousand people? And one of the ways they measured that is by like letters, you know, they, they presumed that like for every letter that came in that stood for a thousand viewers, you know, they had done some research before they went into like a Nielsen type of thing. And Star Trek, Star Trek didn't do as bad as everybody makes it out to seem. In fact, it was, it was really NBC's only prestige show. Um, it got an Emmy nominations. Nimoy was em- nominated every single year for an Emmy. Uh, it 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 was a uh, it was important to Panasonic because Panasonic, which owned NBC, created the color television. And Star Trek, of course, was an incredibly colorful show coming out right when TV shows like Beverly Hillbillies and you know uh, Petticoat Junction and Andy Griffith Show are all starting to convert over to color. And those shows, when they converted to color, they did it in a – they were sort of like muted. If you watch color episodes of Andy Griffith Show or even the Beverly Hillbillies, it's a lot of greens and browns because they kept a lot of the set from the time it was black and white. Star Trek was designed for colors. That's why it's red, yellow, and blue and primary colors because it was designed to sell color televisions. Star Trek is featured in Panasonic NBC basically adds for that. So Star Trek had a lot going for it. It had a it had a devoted audience. It had an educated audience that had money to spend, which is one of the ways that they would measure and still measure um, ratings. But it didn't. It it was so expensive to produce Star Trek that it um, it kind of went. You know, one of the two shows, either Mission Impossible or Star Trek, kind of had to go. And Mission Impossible, they, they tried, you know, they tried to keep that show alive. And Star Trek was kind of like, well, that's the show we'll, we'll sort of not keep alive. So it, it goes away and then it becomes mainstream. As you were talking about college students start watching it. It starts doing better in the ratings in reruns than f- prime time programs, because when it was shown in syndication, it was geared towards the time period that they that the audience was available to watch it. Not on Friday nights when the the audience of Star Trek is out on dates and you know things like that. So Star Trek kind of slowly comes back to the mainstream, but by the mid nineteen seventies, Star Trek is very mainstreamed. Um, Star Wars, of course, kind of comes out of nowhere. So Star Trek's kind of a slow burn to popularity in a way, I guess you could say. But Star Wars is like a meteor strike. And so, you know, the media kind of struggles to to cover both of these because they've never had any phenomenons like this before. And uh, they even cover like the premieres and, and things that go on at the premieres. Yeah. And that um, Star Wars, there were people who were fainting from being in line so long and you know, in the sun. And then my favorite story from the premiere of Star Trek, the motion picture, uh, was a young couple from Kansas City, Missouri. She was pregnant 
two weeks overdue, uh, had been having uh, contractions that weekend, and they still wanted to see the movie. And so fans came prepared. They brought um, like uh, gloves and sheets and like just in case like the baby was going to be delivered during the film. And um, she was having contractions and they left. They saw about three quarters of the film and then had to leave because her contractions were six minutes apart at that point. Um, but she, so they get to the hospital, she has the baby and then they would eventually go back and see the rest of the film. But, you know, talk about dedication where, you know, you're willing to go um, when you're almost ready to give birth. I wonder what they named that kid. I, I, yeah, I was thinking, I, I hope I hope Ilya or Will or... Yeah, yeah the or newspaper didn't pick Decker up with Unit that. Would be yeah. good. This is our son, Decker Unit. <laughs> Carb, carbon <laughs> Unit, yeah. Carbon Unit, Decker Unit. Um, so, uh, yeah, and um, I think, too, uh, when you look at conventions, too, um, it's really the Star Trek convention. I mean, of course, there were science fiction. There were general science fiction conventions that were focused primarily on literature, you know, gosh, going back to the 20s and 30s. Um, but the idea of like a media, meaning television or movie, science fiction event, that was not common until Star Trek. So really all these things like San Diego Comic-Con, Star Wars celebrations, um, you know, fan expos, all that stuff kind of owe their debt of gratitude primarily to, to the women uh, who were the sort of female pioneers of Star Trek fandom, the Joan Winstons and the, the Deborah Langsoms and the, and the, you know, all the, all the, 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 the sort of people who helped to sort of create the first wave of Star Trek fandom and this concept of doing conventions because they, you know, they, they, Star Trek would kind of be there at some of these literary conventions, you know, in fact, uh, Roddenberry shows, um, the cage, uh, which is the pilot episode of Star Trek at a, um, literary sort of world type science fiction convention. But those were more, uh, book based, the literature based. So, but I think too, just observing as fans ourselves, there, there, there are differences between sort of Star Wars and Star Trek conventions. Um, Star Trek conventions are, and, and that's not to say we don't love both. We, we go to both, uh, and have a second mortgage on the house because of both. Um, <laughs> But we, we, we love going to both. I'm, I'm kidding. We're actually selling our house right now. The, the Star Trek conventions, there's a little more, and I think this goes back to its origins, there's a little more active participation with fans on stage, meaning um, not in necessarily a controlled way. So I don't mean like podcasters being able to podcast from the convention or you know maybe a fan being you know putting in a, a request to do a talk that kind of thing. I mean, like spontaneous at, at Star Trek conventions, for example, it's very common for fans to be able to go up and ask questions. That's a little less common at a celebration. It depends on the panel um, and what's going on. Right. Uh, and, 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 and whether it's sort of, you know, yeah. How do you ask? You can't really ask questions at the big Lucasfilm panel, right, where there's 20,000 people there and it's an uh, you know, auditorium event. Um, but there's a little more where the the at most Star Trek conventions, the audience drives the, the panel. Only until recently have they even ever had like a host on stage. It was usually just the actor facing the crowd and the fans would put the questions to the, to the actor. Also, there's, a, you know, there's costume contests and, you know, a little bit more sort of like fans on stage 
kind of thing. I, I wouldn't say that that's a clean demarcation between the two. The Star Wars celebrations are a little more um, like if uh, I don't want to say passive because that's totally not correct. There's a lot of activity, a lot of costuming, things like that that you can do at a Star Trek convention. I mean, Star Wars convention, but there is a, a sort of a slight difference in feeling of it. The other thing I would say Star Wars conventions have over Star Trek is Star Trek, there is a split in the fandom in a way that, which may sound weird to Star Wars fans, that's even more severe than in Star Wars. And that is that this sort of new spate of Star Trek is very different. Not, not, not a quality difference. I mean, just everything about it is different than the original Star Trek. There's sort of Berman era, Roddenberry era Star Trek. And then there's sort of J.J. Abrams, Alec Kurtzman you know, era of Star Trek. And, and you can like both. We, we do. But, but there is a schism at conventions. You, you, you will see the people who are sitting for a discovery panel are not the same people a lot of times who are sitting for an original series panel. And I don't think you ha- you you certainly have fans who like the original trilogy more than whatever. But you know the first six are all George, so there's a love and affinity because they all come from George's imagination. And and of course there's a divide in fandom. We know that in Star Wars, unfortunately, um, which I think is inevitable anytime franchises get this big. But um, I think there's a little more love for the whole property among Star Wars fans. I think people will be fair to debate me on that but there's a little more love for the whole property in star star wars where in star trek there's a little more like well i don't watch that and and i i I watch this and i don't watch that where i think there's not as much of that going on in the star wars world i totally agree having done both many star trek conventions and uh star wars celebrations i've never really thought about that until you were talking about that where some of my best memories from track conventions were I once I saw Kate Mulgrew talk and she was having an in-depth conversation with, uh, with a young woman about politics and it, the, the topic would circle back to Star Trek, of course, cause we're at a Star Trek convention, but it was just fascinating. And something like that could never happen at a Star Wars celebration. But on the other hand, one thing I love about Star Wars celebrations is like what you were saying, like that, how everyone generally, most of the people that travel to go to, cause a, a Star Wars celebration is usually like an event and people usually do have to travel sometimes across the country to go. You're going because you love it. And there's a, when you walk the floor of a Star Wars celebration, there's an energy. I like Gabe and I always say it's like a rock concert at a Star Wars celebration. And sometimes that rock concert kind of feeling is, you know, Star Trek conventions are wonderful, but sometimes they don't feel like rock concerts. Oh, yeah. Very, I think that's a great way of putting it. They, they feel um, they're more like uh, they're really a result of their origins. Right. Um, uh, I think particularly the Star Trek conventions are. And, you know, of course, who runs them? There's different models. Right. Creation Entertainment has a a model that what we like, which is you buy a seat, you get a seat, right? That's your seat. <laughs> I like that because you can, get, you can get up and go to the bathroom. You know, some of the other conventioneers have a thing of, well, if you have a VIP, you got a seat. Maybe you don't have a seat for some of the other things, or maybe there's a lottery or something like that. You know, there's sort of different philosophies of, of running, uh, running at, um, 
so part of it is who's running the type of convention it is, but it's also, I think, a sort of a function of the, the history of the franchises themselves too. Uh, in that, you know, the reality is a, a lot of Star Wars fandom was patterned in reaction to, or, or sometimes against, uh, Star Trek fandom. And by, by that, what I mean is like the Star Trek books are, were never canon, you know, and now they are, now they're trying to make them canon, but they weren't canon originally. They were just meant to be fun books that you read in between waiting for movies and you didn't take the comics seriously. It wasn't like, you know, you were supposed to take them as if they were somehow revealing something important about the characters. That's different. Star Wars has, for the most part, particularly since the Thrawn era, uh, those, you know, the, and of course uh, some have been decanonized, but they were, they were considered canon, right? And so there was that, that was in part a reaction to the idea, well, we don't want our books to be like, you know, these disposable things that, you know, and I, I don't consider the Star Trek books disposable, but you know, that, that I think is a big, although fans in both franchises debate canon all the time. Oh, sure. Well, and, and going back even further too, the, you talked about a lot of the female fans that were kind of keeping things going. And a lot of that was the fanzine culture, right? Like a lot of the Star Trek fanzines and people connecting via pen pals. And I, Gabe and I did a whole episode on this years back where the, the Star Trek fanzine reaction to Star Wars of kind of like, what is this new thing that's set in space and is really popular? That is really fascinating. And then kind of Star Wars fandom, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys know much better than I do, growing out of a lot of these Star Trek fans and fanzines. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a, the, um, Henry Jenkins, who's a, a academic, has an idea called textual poaching, which is... Uh, the idea that this is kind of what Star Trek fans did. They, they would watch Star Trek. And, and, and this is true, by the way, uh, you know, we did a study um, a couple of years ago. It'd be interesting to redo this study now. But we, we looked at about um, uh, 54,000 fans from a whole bunch of different countries. Thank God for the Internet. <laughs> and, um, and, and one of the things we discovered in that, it was fans of Superman, Star Wars, and Star Trek. And we did, we did sort of a comparative thing with that. And one of the things we found in all three groups, although there seems there's there are more male fans than there are female fans, numerically speaking, the female fans tend to be more active. And the male fan, fans tend to express their fandom in, in a little bit more of a passive way. So a little bit more like watching the movies, playing the video games, reading the books, going to conventions, that kind of stuff. Whereas the female fans are the ones organizing the conventions. Uh, again, this is uh, generalities, but, um, uh, you know, costuming was a lot more in the, on the, uh, done by female fans, particularly in the era of Star Trek than by male fans and particularly fanzine writing. And so a lot of times what happened is that women would be watching Star Trek and they would go, Oh, I don't, I, I like this nurse chapel character, but she's, you know, I don't know. I don't like that. She's kind of a little wussy. So they would rewrite her character and they would, they would make it her, make her the way they wanted her to be. And out of that came out of things like, like Spock and alien and all these sort of early uh, Star Trek fanzines and some of them really important. Interstat was really important. Interstat was just fans basically writing letters to each other. So it was the, before there was the internet, it was sort of a discussion board. Uh, 
and you would go back and forth and back and forth. And so there, th- those early days really were, I think of Star Trek in particular, where, where fans were took a creative role in it. They kind of had to, too, because there wasn't a lot of products and things like that. So they had to sort of make them themselves. And they also started a lot of the fan clubs, uh, the actor-centered fan clubs as well. It's fa- fascinating going back, too, and seeing some of that same thinking with the Han, Luke, Leia love triangle, too, and some of those early star wars fanzines that kind of shot off and then the reactions to either empire strikes back or return the jedi back then it was a big part of fandom you know that the, it it still exists of course it's just not it's on it's online now but it was uh fan fiction but it was you know battlestar galactica had had you know literally every science v you know um <laughs> And some of these lasted, you know, some of these fanzines lasted exponentially longer than the show uh, and, and and kept going for years and years and years. You know, Star Trek also had a really interesting thing called the Star Trek Welcome Committee, uh, which was a group of fans who volunteered their time to help other fans get into the fandom. Um, and that was during the 1970s. And you could write letters to the Welcome Committee and ask questions like, where do I find, you know, how can I write William Shatner? Where do I find the Star Trek books? What are the new books? And they had this whole sort of network of of fans, uh, many of them women, who would, you know, help other fans learn about Star Trek and learn how to be fans. And then Mary Kind of like a great material continuum. And then you also had fans creating, um, you know, when, when there wasn't something like when Star Trek wasn't on the air, creating their own videos, like Star Trek Continues. And of course, that leads to the Star, the Star Wars fans making their own Star Wars, you know, fan films. Yeah, making their own. A lot of a lot of similarity there between those two. It, it always seems interesting to me hearing the stuff of just how much you know you forget the past and think that a lot of this fandom stuff is is new or because of the internet and the fact that really passionate fans have kind of been this way forever, ever since you know there were books, probably right of of, of anything. People were just. They have the need to talk to other people who like the same stuff and they have the need to argue about that stuff. And it's just, you know, passionate people. That's just how we are. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, the, the fan, the, the, you know, when I was a kid, to, if you wanted to record your the episode of Star Trek or Battlestar Galactica, I remember recording Battlestar Galactica. You did it with a tape recorder and you recorded the audio. Uh, and you played the audio back because that's all you could do. We didn't have VCRs and and that kind of thing back then. Um, and so uh, I think the fact that both Star Wars and Star Trek came out at a time when you couldn't watch either one on demand. You know, you couldn't stream stream them anytime you wanted to. When you had to watch Star Trek when your local network was showing it, or you had to see Star Wars when they, you know, when they were re-showing them in theaters. It's funny in our book, uh, in, the, in the Star Trek Two book, we have a, we have a thing in there. We mentioned the competition that Star Trek Two has had that year in theaters, like uh, Rocky and ET and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And somebody said Raiders of the Lost Ark didn't come out in 1982, and I said I know it came out in 1981. It was re-released in the summer of 1982 because they would re-release these films almost annually sometimes because you couldn't watch them on. VHS, although VHS was sort of beginning back then, and that concept was beginning. But Raiders of the Lost Ark was in theaters in 1982 in July again. 
Um, and so that was that was really the only if you if you saw Raiders in 1981 and loved it, you had to wait till 1982, the summer of 82, to go see it again because there was no other way to enjoy it again. So you you would do things like maybe buy the the movie on record. Or, or, you know, get the novelization or read the comics or play with the toys. There were ways that you kept the fandom going. And I think that uh, Star Trek and Star Wars both benefited, their longevity benefited from the fact that there was such a strong desire by fans, but we, that desire couldn't always be satiated because it wasn't always on demand. You're talking about people recording it made me think of the, just remind me of the great Ben Burt interview he did for the first J.J. Uh, Abrams film where he talked about he had the Star Trek, the original series episodes recorded on like reel-to-reel tape or something. And he listened to them over and over before he even saw an inch of the actual show. And young Ben Burt just being obsessed with the incredible soundscape of the original series and what an influence that was for him and created this kind of passion in him for far out outer space sounds. I was a, a Trekkie back during the broadcast of uh, the series, and I was very much inspired by the sounds I loved in the original series. So when I was asked to work on the very first Star Wars movie, I took a lot of my inspiration from the sounds that I loved in Star Trek. So naturally, when I had an opportunity to think and uh, uh, conceptualize about sound effects in the new Star Trek, I was very excited because I always want to be part of that, that whole universe. In fact, that's kind of one of our fun uh, things, too, is to look at like the behind-the-scenes people that are involved in both, like... Um, like, you know, one of the things fans may or may not recognize is that, you know, Star Trek was um, in Mary Jo had mentioned it. Enterprise, you know, had been canceled. The Star Trek fan club had been disbanded. It, it looked like Star Trek was going to go away for a long, long time around 2005, 2006. The video game companies were suing. I mean, it was like it was it was um, it was not a great period of time for the franchise. And when uh, JJ had had sort of one favor at Paramount and Paramount asked JJ Abrams, what is it you want your next project to be? I'm guessing a lot at the urging of people like Orsi and Kurtzman. Uh, but I think uh, Abrams too, uh, seeing it as a challenge, he said, he said, Star Trek. He's the one who said, I want to do a Star Trek movie. And although he wasn't a, he was more of a Star Wars kid than a Star Trek kid, uh, as he talks about in interviews. If it wasn't for Abrams saying I want to do Star Trek and it coming out in two thousand and nine, the franchise might have sat there for ten years. Because you know, like I Love Lucy still makes like ten million dollars a year. They, you don't necessarily have to have new content for a franchise, especially a really good one, to make a company money. And so, you know, we're, we're, as fans, we're sitting there watching everything getting sold at auction. They're auctioning off all the Star Trek stuff. It's just looking like, wow, this is going to be like it was in the late 60s when Star Trek went off the air. And it's going to be this like long period where the fans – and that's what did happen, by the way. Fans sort of took back Star Trek, started making their own fan films again, stuff like that. But J.J. really comes in in a way and rescues Star Trek. But, you know, there's always been a connection between Star Trek and Star Wars, you know, on, on screen and behind the, the, the scene. Um, 
Uh, ILM, of course, is probably the biggest of those. Uh, we, when we interviewed uh, Ken Ralston for the, our Star Trek book, uh, of course, I had to ask him about Star Wars. I mean, talking to Ken Ralston, who's like, and by the way, one of the greatest guys. I mean, just such a great creative, and he's a fan. He's a science fiction fan. And he's just a very easy person to interview and talk with and very just a wonderful man. Anyway, you know, he worked on the Star Trek films and he was really one of the two, there were sort of two visual effects supervisors on The Wrath of Khan. Uh, and one of them is is Ken. And so you know, of course, Ken worked on all three of the original trilogy Star Wars films, um, and he did the he was the visual effects supervisor on the Wrath of Khan, the Search for Spock, the Voyage Home. So he did, you know, a lot of Star Wars and, and Star Trek films. Uh, he was a puppeteer for Cruge's dog, if people know remember Do- Cruge's dog in Star Trek Three, and of course he puppeted this this Seti Alpha Eels also um, in Star Trek Two. But the, the Star Trek Two was very important to Lucasfilm. Um, that and Dragon Slayer were the first two films that they were doing that were not, ILM was doing that were not Star Wars films. And they had to show Hollywood that they were capable of doing something other than Star Wars. And it was truly the success of, because both of those films were successful, particularly Star Trek II, but um, they were both visually, certainly visually successful. And that really was, a, again, Ken mentioned this to us, a very, very important to ILM. And, and so, of course, many of the Star Trek films use, use ILM. And John Knoll, uh, of course, Star, Star Wars, you know, giant behind the scenes, uh, even created the story for Rogue One, uh, was the visual effects supervisor on Star Trek Generations. So he destroys the Enterprise D um, and First Contact. Uh, he creates the solar ship, if anybody's a fan of Deep Space Nine, and the really beautiful solar ship that Captain Sisko uses. Uh, in that episode, Ascension, that was designed by John Knoll, of course, who creates Photoshop. I mean, another genius, right? So this is one of the reasons when you watch like Star Wars and Star Trek films, you can see ILM puts little jokes in there. R2-D2 is in Star Trek 2009, if you look at the Vulcan debris field. And then in Star Trek Into Darkness, um, when the crew are in the, you know, sucked out in the vacuum of space, R2 is sucked out as well. Which means R two is uh, is a crew member on the Enterprise. That's canon because that was on screen. <laughs> and then you have um, Millennium Falcon in the battle um, with the Borg in um, Star Trek: First Contact. One of the behind the scenes connections that blew my mind was was it re- in just last year in Light and Magic what was the thing that Richard Edlund designed the font for the original series. Yeah, you know it's it's amazing how many people. Some, you know, sort of would that would go on either to work in future Star Trek films or in visual effects that they played these little sort of these roles in the creation of the original show. Um, uh, Adeline's a great example. Um, Mike Miner, who went on to work in uh, a lot of science fiction films, in particular Star Trek Two, uh, and I believe Mike was a friend. I th- I, 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 you'll, you'll have to ask Steve Stansweet, so I may be wrong. I think Steve. Sansweet and Mike Miner were neighbors with each other and knew, knew one another, which is just great because another Star Trek convention, Star Trek connection there. Anyway, um, so Mike, um, Mike Miner made a lot of contributions to Star Trek. He designed like he did like the paintings that you see on the Enterprise in the original Star Trek. So when you see like Kirk's quarters or someone's quarters, and they got a painting. Uh, he designed the Tholian Web. Uh, uh, Mike Miner, and then he he's, he did a lot of work on, on in, in Star Trek II uh, as well. 
and so yeah, I think too the 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 sort of you, you, the the connection between the makeup and all of that. There's there's a sort of through line where and where they learned a lot from what had been done on Star Trek and brought it into Star Wars and some of the special effects artists being inspired by Star Trek to go into special effects and then eventually working on Star Wars. Like um, Judy Elkins is another great example. So Judy Elkins, who works at ILM, she, every time you, like when you see the, the phasers raising into the, enter, the enterprise, when the Reliant is sort of the surgically altering the enterprise in Wrath of Khan, um, and a lot of the phaser beams and stuff, a lot of that's Judy El, uh, uh, Judy's work. There's just a lot of crossover uh, back and forth uh, between that. I mean, it's it's kind of when you it's 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 not the same franchise, but it's when you learn that John Williams did the you know both uh, themes for Lost in Space that you go, oh my God, the world is a beautiful place. When you were talking about the 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 post Enterprise era and the the dissolving of the fan club, I mean, I was thinking around that time, and we, well, and you bringing that up made me think of this almost kind of spiritual connection between the two of periods when Star Trek kind of comes up and comes down. Also, Star Wars is coming up and coming down. Like we, we, we talked about like the Berman era in the 90s. And of course, with Next Generation, that kind of being way before Star, Trek, Star Wars coming back, but in the height of Deep Space Nine and Voyager being on at the same time was right around when the prequels were coming out. And right around when Enterprise was canceled, it was like Gabe and I talk about all the time. It's like, well, I guess Star Wars is done now. And Gabe and I always joke where, well, Star Wars is done. Star Trek is done. I guess we got to go out and get get married and have kids and do things grownups do, I guess. <laughs> but it is interesting how these things kind of and, – and now this new era of Star Wars we live in and now this new era of Star Trek we live in. And both are thriving in new and kind of unexpected ways. It, it is interesting how these two things kind of run side by side with each other. Especially since now with Star Wars being so huge on TV, kind of turning more into Star Trek with Star Trek. You know, there were a lot of Star Trek movies, but Star Trek at its core was always kind of a TV thing. And Star Wars was always like the big screen movie thing. And now it's kind of, you know, with the JJ movie kind of being a Star Wars take on Star Trek uh, and ushering a few more movies. But now with Star Wars on TV, they've kind of, I don't know, become a lot more similar just in kind of how fans experience it. Yeah. And Star Trek has had, I think, a tougher time balancing those two, because I, I think uh, I, I, I obviously I, we love the Star Trek movies. They're they're. You know, Wrath of Khan is a is is such a special thing to us, and and really all of that. I like I love all the Star Trek films. Uh, I'm a big fan of Star Trek Five. I love it. I, there's no better Kirk, Spock, McCoy movie than Star Trek Five, even if you don't like the rest of it. It's beautiful to see them together so much in that film. That's music to our ears. You're you're welcome in our house with with the Star Trek Five love. <laughs> I mean, it has the line, "What does God need with a starship? How can you not like that film?" And I, and I love I love the special effects in five. I I love that it 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 just it it warms my heart because it all like five. I've I talk to a friend of mine about this all the time. Five is the most like the original series in my opinion. But what you said was interesting about five too, and I think that's true of Star Star Trek Insurrection. The films that tend to be the ones that are least popular among 
some fans anyway, uh, or even the general audience, um, are the ones that are the most like the TV shows. So Star Trek Insurrection is very much like a Next Generation television episode and was written that way by Michael Piller. It was designed to be a, a an episode on the big screen. Um, and, so, and so too was Star Trek V, an episode on the big screen. Whereas the other films, it's all like world changing, universe changing, got to stop, you know, this device or the world ends, Earth is in danger. And, you know, two of the three J.J. Uh, Abrams movies, you know, I, I think there's been a little bit more of a struggle to bring Star Trek to the cinema. It's one of the reasons that, you know, there's there's these big delays between between these films sometimes where Star Wars, I think, has been again, we can people can debate quality or whatever, but they've certainly been more successful transitioning to tv in the streaming era anyway right we can you know the, uh, but i like the i like the wookie uh i like the holiday special but some, it, because because that's all we had right when i was a kid it was start it was han solo luke skywalker chewbacca it, a lot of it is sort of post after we can look back on it and be sort of snarky about it but i don't remember a single one of my friends going that that was terrible I remember everybody going, wasn't it cool to see Han, Luke, and Leia again? We weren't processing it. And you were watching it through 70s eyes back then. So it wasn't unusual to see, you know, Jefferson Starship. You know, now you're looking at it going, what the hell is this? But they were doing a lot of, a lot of drugs back then. <laughs> and then I thought Mary Jo had put together kind of a fun list of uh, of the actors who are in, are in both. So. Okay, so you have um, George Takei playing Lapdurd in The Clone Wars. Brent Spiner, um, Data, who um, plays exiled Senator Gail Travis in uh, Rise of the Old Masters in a Rebels episode. Um, Simon Pegg, uh, Scotty in the J.J. Abrams um, films, plays um, Ankar Plot. Um, Deep Roy, who plays Keenzer in Star Trek, uh, was Droopy McCool. Um, and he was also a stand-in, uh, for Yoda. Simon Pegg was also, uh, Dengar in Clone Wars, too. Um, Finola Flanagan played Data's mom, if you, people remember her. She was really Data's robot mom. This was a bit bizarre. And herself a robot. Uh, in Next Generation. Uh, and she, she played a few other roles on Enterprise and things like that. But she played, um, in the Ewok Adventure, she was the mom, uh, Katarine. Oh my goodness! And then Mary Jo's got a couple of oh, uh, of, of uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say there, you have a bunch of people who um, who were on Star Trek who voice acted. So Olivia Diabo, um, who was the true in True Q on uh, Next Gen, um, she voiced Luminara Unduli in the Clone Wars. Uh, Ethan Phillips, who we know as Neelix, um, has been in Star Wars video games, um, voice acting. Uh, Ron Perlman, who's the Viceroy. Um, he's the voice of, I don't even know how to pronounce that. I think it's God notched. Yeah. In, Clone <laughs> in the Clone Wars. And, uh, Ian, of course you got to look at the emperors, right? So you got Ian Abercrombie who was in uh, episodes of Voyager. And by the way, I got to tell, tell you a great story about him. Uh, he used to be on Seinfeld. I think a lot of people know him from Seinfeld, but he was the voice of the emperor in the Clone Wars whenever, uh, it wasn't done by uh, Ian McDermott. Uh, he passed away, but we had writ, wrote him a letter, fan letter, uh, on behalf of our son, who was very young, but he was watching uh, Clone Wars at the time. Uh, and uh, you know, special memory of our son is going to see the midnight showing of the Clone Wars movie because um, he was like, 
uh, gosh, he was probably seven years old at the time. Mm-hmm. So we wrote him and he not only wrote our son back and sent a picture and all that and signed a card and all that. He sent our son some Star Wars books, which we just thought was really nice to him. He just seemed like a really nice man, um, even though he played the emperor. <laughs> so, um, uh, and then of course, Clive Revel in sort of reverse, he played the voice of the emperor in the Empire Strikes Back, or the original voice of the emperor and when it was in theaters. And then, but he plays Sir Guy of Gisborne on Star Trek, the next generation in the episode where they kind of Q sends them to the Robin Hood, you know, uh, story. Of course, we got Greg Grunberg, who's in both because he's friends with J.J. Abrams. So um, he plays the voice of Kirk's stepfather in Star Trek 2009. And then he's Commander Finnegan, who's the one who sort of, uh, at least in the original Star Trek, is the one uh, on the planet uh, Shore Leave where Kirk has the big fight with, fist fight with, um, because they used to, he used to like torture Kirk at the Academy. Uh, and he played, uh, Greg Gunberg plays the, the, Kelvin universe version of that same character um, in Star Trek Beyond. Actually, he's on screen in that one. And then, of course, he's Snap, right, in the Star Wars films. Dies terribly. And uh, But I think our favorite is, so Patty Malone, who uh, was in The Thaw, I think was the name of the episode from Voyager. Um, that's one where, where Michael McKeon is in there. He plays like a clown. It's a very psychological, strange episode of Voyager. And um, uh, and and you just you wonder what 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 became of of uh, Lenny? They were doing a lot of drugs back then. <laughs> yeah, that was drugs uh, in the eighties. So uh, Patty Malone uh, is in that. She plays one of the clowns, kind of entourage, and of course she played Lumpy uh, in uh, the holiday special. So uh, just so many different characters, uh, actors who were in both uh, franchises. You know, ne- there, there's never been a. You know, Mark Hamill or Carrie Fisher, who did, but I think George Takei and Brent Spiner and, and Simon Pegg, those are sort of the the, the you know main character uh, actors. Uh, those are the ones that Mary Jo mentioned. Uh, those are those are kind of fun. Um, I would love someday Mark Hamill to voice a character in one of the Star War, uh, one of the uh, Star Trek, either an animated show, you know, or to play a character. That would be that would I think be a lot of fun. There's still plenty of time, and you know Mark Hamill probably loves Star Trek. So, I think the closest that we get like the main three in Star Wars uh, with Star Trek is when William Shatner did his wonderful tribute to George Lucas at the AFI uh, Awards, uh, came out and started to talk about how great Star Trek was. Then he looks at his sheet and is like, "Wait, Star Wars!" And then they have stormtroopers. <laughs> they have stormtroopers come out to arrest. You know. Uh, Shatner, and then Shatner's like, no, 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 it is tribute to Lucas's hair, uh, and and then sings and then sings uh, Lucas uh, My Way by Frank Sinatra, and he's carried off stage by stormtroopers. This this really happened. Star Trek changed everything. <laughs> and aren't these conventions wonderful? Mr. Shatner, we want you to open the show. Star Wars? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can do Star Wars. I can do it. If someone's listening to this and they like both, they want to like both, but I feel like, like we said early in the beginning, it's it's almost like something 
on each side for for Trek fans and for Star Wars fans. They don't want to admit that they like both because they're afraid of you know yo you can't like both. How would you tell people what? How should they go forward with liking both? What would you What would you say to those people? This kind of reminds me of. There was an article from the 70s in a magazine called Fave, which is kind of like a teen magazine, um, where a girl writes in and she talks about being an outcast at school. And um, the person who responds back um, and gives her advice is Leonard Nimoy, but he is writing as if he's Spock and um, basically tells her to you know, not care about being popular, just, you know, care about, you know, being a good person, being smart, being, um, excelling at what you do. And I like that advice. And I think it just, you can use that for anything in life. You just, just be who you are. And when you are your true self and you express what you like and who you are, then the right people are going to like you for the right reasons. And so you shouldn't care about trying to fit in you'll find acceptance. And that's one of the things I love about going to conventions is you're with your people. You're with people who, who know you, who get you, who like what you like. And, um, I think also that's a great place for someone to, to, to go is go to, uh, conventions and you'll find people just like yourself. You know, it's funny, Mary Jo has mentioned that. I was just thinking about how many times where that was beautiful, by the way, I like that. Well, that's, um, that was, nice. that was uh, Nimoy's advice. That was Spock. <laughs> but yeah, you remembered it from a fa- from a Fave magazine, which she has all of them, by the way, every single issue of Fave. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, that reminded me of what, what Mary Jo just said, which was um, you, many times you go to Star Trek conventions and you see people dressed up in Star Wars costumes. You'll go to a Star Wars convention and there's red shirts or, you know, uh, people wearing their maroon Star Trek outfits or something. And sometimes people will combine the two, you know, into one costume. And and I've only ever seen those fans get love from the other fans. Yeah. They want to take pictures. They think it's cool. Come on over. You know, even when people are having fun, you know, with, with, with one another. And I, we've all seen photos of the stormtroopers looking like they're going to arrest the, you know, all the red shirts are on their knees or vice versa, you know. I guess my answer would be uh, is that you know I, they really are two different things. I mean that's that's you know Star Wars is not science fiction as much as it has the trappings of science fiction. It is it has nothing that would define it as science fiction, despite the fact that it has robots and spaceships. It is fantasy. Uh, it relies on magic for its resolution. Uh, the force, although they did try to do a little bit of a scientific explanation for it with midichlorians, but that's kind of gone the way the way the wayside. Um, it's you, you, the force isn't explained, um, and Lucas even talks about it in one of the early interviews. Uh, in fact, the I think the maybe the earliest interview Lucas ever does is in a newspaper way before Star Wars comes out, and he's sort of explaining what Star Wars is, and in there he says. Star Wars is is not science fiction. It's he goes. We don't stop and explain anything. Um, it, it, it's just it's fantasy. And and but of course Star Star Trek is us, right? So Star Trek is is our great grandchildren. It is science fiction. Um, it does rely on science often for the resolution of the story, um, and it extrapolates 
what things are like today into the future. But that 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 is supposed to be us in Star Trek. Those are our, all of our our great times, whatever uh, children. Star Wars. I'm not related to those people. That that is a fantasy placed a long time ago, uh, deliberately um, in another galaxy. You know, it, it is the it is a faraway land, a long time ago in a in a you know kingdom far away. And so you can like if for some reason you feel like you need to follow rules. You if you like you can like fantasy and science fiction. They're two different genres, and I think Star Wars and Star Trek are two different genres. There's only one rule, and that's don't mix the toys. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that for a while, because you know, for anybody out there who have that problem. Uh, I'm here to help. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think it's me that needs the help because I was very – I still – Mary Jo's right. I still do it. I have, I have a Star Wars room and a Star Trek room, and they won't – the only thing that overlaps is there's a door that closes, and I have a Shatner poster on one of them. <laughs> you need to write a letter to, to, uh, to Spock and see if he can help you. <laughs> You know what's funny? When I mentioned this real, real fast, I forgot about this when you said that. Um, if you go back, if you ever get a chance to get some of those early fanzines like Spock and Alia or whatever, the actors used to get those on set, on the set of Star Trek. And they would, they would, they would sometimes participate in those fanzines. So one of my favorite things is like McCoy, it's, it's actually DeForest Kelly writing as McCoy is like complaining about Spock to the fanzine and, and Leonard Nimoy writing as Spock, like is replying back, like what a pain, a pain McCoy is. And, you know, blah, blah. It's, it's hilarious watching that. So a lot of that, that sort of a participation by the act, they understood, I think back then the importance of the fans to, to keeping that show going. And that just reminded me when you met, when you mentioned that. Well, and I, and I think that's a great way to kind of close this all out. Like what you just said, that, in the end, it's the importance of the fans. Like without the fans and these dedicated fan bases, which you know we're all just so lucky to have lived in this time to have experienced both Star Wars and Star Trek. These great stories come from people's imagination, just pure expressions of imagination that have literally been kept alive by extremely dedicated fan bases and if there's any divide between those two fan bases they just need to kind of look at each other and be like we're really not different no not at all yeah you're absolutely right because uh the fans uh with uh, star trek right the letter writing campaign which is very famous but the fans helped save star trek for a third season without that i two seasons they probably wouldn't have been able to go into syndication and then you get into a what if and then what if there was no star trek would a studio, you know, I, I've always wondered, I wish Alan Ladd Jr. was alive today. I, I wonder how much the mainstreaming success of Star Trek that was going on in the 70s made it. I know his, his and, I, and I think this is probably 99% of it. He just believed in Lucas, right? I mean, he, he didn't, Lucas could have, you know, proposed anything. He, he believed in Lucas as a creator, um, and, uh, and therefore has really bought Lucas more than he bought Star Wars. Um, but I wonder how much of maybe a little bit of a, the, the, seeing this sort of popularity, these toy lines selling like crazy, um, Migos Star Trek line. I mean, for a show that was off the air for five years and it's like one of the number one selling toy lines in the country I, that all there, there's such a connection between the two and it really does all go down to the fans.
presents the Star Trek action figures featuring the crew of the Enterprise, Captain James T. Kirk, their fearless leader, Dr. Bones McCoy, caring for the health of the Enterprise crew, Scotty, the chief engineer, in charge of the transporter room, Mr. Spock, the Vulcan, second in command, and the Klingon, enemy of the Star Trek crew. Star Trek action figures, complete with accessories shown, each sold separately from Mego. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. All right, everybody. So that was incredible. Like we said, that was an episode we've been talking about doing for years and years and years and john and mary joe were just so happy to have you back so as everyone knows apple podcasts when you get done listening to this we'd really appreciate it if you left us a review so more people can find the show and make sure you check out our website blastpointspodcast.com and follow us on instagram twitter and facebook and if you're on facebook make sure you are a member of the blast point super chill group We've got the Blast Points Army on Patreon with new stuff coming very soon on there. And a huge thank you to everyone who is a member of the Blast Points Army on Patreon. But, John and Mary Jo, let's talk about what you all have got going on. You talked about this Wrath of Khan book. Well, starting on September 5th, um, fans can purchase Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, uh, which is the making of the classic film. That will be uh, sold everywhere, Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, uh, we're really excited about it. It's an official uh, Paramount licensed book. Um, it's got, uh, was really designed beautifully by uh, Titan Publishers. Um, and just lots of images fans have maybe never seen before. And lots and lots of stories. Um, uh, lots of behind the scenes details. And we wrote the book with the idea that we wanted to share stories that had never been done before. So that's coming out, uh, Mary Jo mentioned, September 5th, so just uh, soon. We uh, are waiting to hear from uh, some publishers. Uh, we had a, um, a publisher lined up for our Brian Daly book, um, but uh, the rights have reverted back to us. So uh, we are in the process now. We have the book at several publishers. Uh, hopefully, we'll have some news about that soon. Um, and that's the book that we wrote about the making of the Star Wars radio dramas and the legacy of Brian Daly. Um, again, I've talked about it a bunch of times on um, uh, before with Blast Points, but it's a really beautiful book. Uh, we think it's a tribute to Brian. Tons of Star Wars information on there. Uh, we were able to have access to Brian's archives, which had loads of Star Wars, uh, especially uh, 80s and 90s uh, era information in there. Um, but we tell the story of Brian Daly uh, and his contributions to Star Wars and to and to many other uh, properties uh, uh, in tandem with telling the story of the making of the radio dramas. And we're excited because we have um, uh, 
inter- brand new interviews with Anthony Daniels and the director um, John Madden and uh, uh, Perry King, who plays Han Solo, and Ann Sachs, who plays Leia, and just many of the people, uh, and Tom Vagley, uh, who uh, did the sound editing on that, and did the the Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, you know, movie on record. Uh, that was Tom, and just. Uh, lots of great stuff in there, and we think a lot of stuff about Star Wars fans may not know, uh, not just about the radio dramas, but about Star Wars itself, uh, including Brian Daly being the one who uh, had um, the book rights gone uh, back to Del Rey uh, would have been the Timothy Zahn, would have been the one doing the, the new the new trilogy of books. Yeah, just a lot of, which I don't want to lose the throne, though, but I would have loved to have had both. <laughs> Uh, no, we're just we're and we're excited. We we have some uh, we hopefully have some library talks coming up too. Um, we're in the process of moving, so that those are kind of on hold for the next um, couple months. But uh, we hope to have some uh, library talks. Those are free talks where we share uh, all our research with uh, fellow fans. So um, uh, if people are interested, they could just sort of follow us on um, Facebook. Just look for the name John Tenuto, and we just sort of share that. Uh, that page and uh, we will we post anytime we're doing like a talk or something like that well and it was one of your talks that you did at celebration chicago back in 2019 about the radio dramas and brian daly where gabe and i went and still and we're not it's just saying this because you're here we've said it to you many times in the past but again for everyone listening it was one of the best panels we'd ever been to at a star wars celebration and it blew our minds, and we still talk about it to this day. And we are just so happy that you have joined us now so many times to talk because you guys are just incredible, and we just love talking with you. Well, thank you both. You know, we, we, I, that, that audience that was there, the fellow fans that were there at the Brian Daly talk at uh, Star Wars Celebration, including uh, both of you, um, everybody, there was just so much love in that room for Brian Daly, I think, that, uh, and the radio dramas that... Um, it was just it was easily the most memorable talk we ever gave because of that affection that everybody just had Uh, there that goes back again to just how awesome star trek and star wars fans are thank you all so much again for joining us and thank you everyone for listening thank you everybody may the force be with you goodbye old friend may the force be with you turn things over to our Grand Marshal, Mr. Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> I'd say this vessel could do at least warp five. <laughs> <laughs> and let me say, may the force be with you. Do you even know who I am? I think I do. Weren't you one of the little rascals? May the force be with you! Ah!